A good haircut can be a game changer. I mean, everybody wants to look their best for those social media pics, right? So get yourself to Sport Clips at Sport Clips Haircuts. They hair do like no one else hair does. See what they did there? Not only is it the home of champion haircuts, but they've also made relaxing and unwinding the name of the game. Level up your haircut with the MVP haircut experience. It's a spa day for your follicles. Check this out. You get a seven pressure point massaging shampoo along with a perfectly steamed hot towel all while sports plays on the TV. Does it get any better than that? No. You can want it all and have it all at Sport Clips. It's a game changer. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. Somebody help! Help! What the hell happened to you? My friend, she's sick. You don't look so good. I know. There, just, there's this disease. I, I, I think all my friends are getting it. And I, did you just know where a hospital is around or something? Yeah. Stay right there. Don't come any closer. I'll get a doctor. Thanks. Pancakes! Pancakes! No pancakes. All right, we've waited nearly 10 years for a new Eli Roth horror movie. Can you believe that? A new Eli Roth directed movie. It's been 10 years almost since Hostel 2, but today the wait ends. All right, because The Green Inferno is in theaters. Actually, Knock Knock is in theaters as well, I believe. But we're talking about The Green Inferno today, one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not kidding about this. Eli Roth has always been a huge fan of his, both as a director and as a person. Really good guy, one, a good friend of mine. And not only is he a good friend, he is a scary, scary movie maker. Wait until you see The Green Inferno. You will run out of the theater clutching your eyes if they don't get popped out and eaten. Not giving anything away when I say that. But even better, Eli is here today to talk all about The Green Inferno, to give us a behind-the-scenes look at his new cannibal horror movie. I think he outdid himself with this one. He went all the way to the jungles of Peru, met up with a tribe that had never had any contact with the outside world. This is real. He actually traveled down the Amazon River, met up with an indigenous tribe, that's a good word, and they uh, agreed to appear in his movie. You'll hear how he paid them off. You'll hear the the movie that he showed them. They'd never seen a movie before. He showed them a movie to get them into the spirit of what he was doing. And what do you find out what movie it was? This story is incredible. Eli is the new Vana Herzog. If you don't know who Vana Herzog is, you better go look it up right now, right here. Eli also explains why he decided to make a cannibal horror movie in the first place and some of the real-life craziness that ended up in the movie because there was no way to cut it out. Cut it out. I'm telling you right now, it's going to get your adrenaline pumping today with Eli Roth, and you are going to love it. Funny, funny guy, great storyteller, good friend, and a great director. The following program is a podcastwarm.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. 
This is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The remedy for boredom has arrived. The People's Podcast is here. Let's go for a ride on Green Inferno Friday. Peru is dangerous. We can't just go invade a country. I just think I should be doing something about the rainforest. Why, uh... You know what this is? We have to get out of here. Yeah, and if you're an Eli Roth horror movie fan, you know it's probably not going to happen, all right? You also know that some people are going to meet some pretty grisly demises. I watched Hostel the other day. Oh, my gosh, that is so gross. The girl with the eyeball hang. Eli's got some kind of eyeball fetish. There's a crazy eyeball scene in Green Inferno as well. I'm telling you right now, it's been nearly 10 years since Eli's released a new movie that he's directed. And as luck would have it, he's got two movies in the next couple weeks. Green Inferno is out today, and Knock Knock does not come out today. It comes out October 9th. But how, how, what that two Eli Roth movies within the next you know two weeks after waiting almost 10 years I am excited about this Eli is one of my favorite directors one of my favorite people we got a great conversation coming up I want to go back firstly though uh, before Eli comes on and just clarify a few things about uh, what I said on Twitter this week about the fan who uh, ended up in the ring at Night of Champions, uh, just to reprise it, uh, Roman Reigns and Dean Ambrose were in the ring with the Wyatts, and they had announced that there's a mystery partner. Who's the mystery partner going to be? And some jackass comes in the ring and stands there. Now, it's just so, it makes me laugh so much that uh, this guy actually got some jail time, all right? And it makes me laugh so much that people got mad at me for calling this guy a jackass. I said, you know, uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that the guy who jumped in the ring got some jail time. Uh, stay out of our ring. And I got a lot of people saying, it's not your ring. It's the fans ring. It's our ring. No, it's not. This is our ring. Only for WWE superstars. You can make all the bad jokes you want. You can get mad at me all you want. I don't give a shit. Okay? Like I said last week, this is our ring. This is our place of work. Stay out of it or you'll get hurt. And the fact that the dude, I'm not even going to mention his name. Screw him. The guy who jumped in the ring in Houston was arrested and charged with criminal trespass for running into the ring. Okay? And as a result, he was uh, sentenced to 10 days in jail. All right. And a lot of people are like, oh, come on. That's a lot. Can't you just ban him for life uh, from future WWE events? Big deal. You know, I mean, I want to explain a couple of things to you guys to, to make you realize how, um, how, 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 how ridiculous this is. Okay. Obviously, the guy jumped into the ring um, because he, he, you know, he was wearing the, the shield outfit and he wanted to, 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 make, to make a joke and have a laugh. You know, he's a 37-year-old guy. He was charged with criminal trespass of a property or building with no forced entry. He pled guilty and was sentenced to 10 days in jail. All right. So you're like, oh, isn't that stiff? Isn't that stiff? Well, there's a couple things about this. I believe X-Pac tweeted, better 10 days in jail than 10 days in the hospital. And you could be laughing going, oh, yeah, sure, tough wrestler talk. This is real. If, if, if somebody jumps in the ring, like I said the other day, we have the, the right to punch you and kick you and do whatever has to be done. And people who still think that's too strict, let me ask you this. You ever hear about Dimebag Daryl when he's on stage at his place of work playing rock and roll, just started the set with Damage Plan 10 years ago almost to the day, as a matter of fact, a couple months away from Dimebag's Untimely Demise. Fan walks on stage, walks right up to him, shoots him. Okay? You think if that guy would have been subdued and taken out and given 10 days in jail? Oh, come on. He just jumped on stage. No. 
He shot and killed Dimebag. Okay, how about Monica Seles? One of the biggest tennis stars of the early 90s was about to have another classic match. It was the, the classic rivalry, Steffi Graf. This was building up to be one of tennis's biggest things. A fan jumps on the, on the court and stabs her in the back with a knife. You think if that fan would have been subdued and taken away and given 10, years, uh, 10 days in jail that someone, oh, come on, he just jumped on the tennis court. No, he did not. He stabbed Steffi Graf. Or how about uh, Randy Bly when when the fan jumped on stage in Czechoslovakia in the Czech Republic, sorry, and ended up dying? I mean, he should not have jumped on stage. You know, obviously it was a terrible accident, but you could die in these situations. So coming into the ring, it's a very dangerous place, okay? It's like going into a a lion's den at the zoo, the lion pit. I'm going to go climb in the pit with the lions. That'll be funny. And you get subdued and taken out and given 10 days in jail. Oh, that's way too stiff. He just jumped in the lion's pit. Or you get ripped apart by the lions. See, it's, it's a mutual thing. It's like you should not be in the ring. We don't want you there for your own safety because you might get the shit kicked out of you. And I wouldn't stand there laughing. I would have punched that guy as hard as I could. And I'll tell you a story in a couple minutes about it. Because I don't know what his intentions are. And I'm not going to wait. And it's the same thing where it's not just for for his safety, but for ours. What if he comes in there with a knife or a gun or, I don't know, anything, a a needle, whatever. It doesn't matter what it is. Point is, I don't know what you're going to do, and you are not where you're supposed to be. This is not like somebody coming up to you in a bar and asking for your your autograph or a picture and you punch him in the face. This is a guy sneaking into the ring, the equivalent of of crawling down into the bear pit or the lion's pit. Why would you ever want to do that? It's stupid to get on TV for one second, to get attacked and, and taken backstage and put in jail now. That's why the WWE did this. They, they were prosecuting him at the fullest extent of the law so that you do not do this. And someone, when I tweeted that it's good he got jail time for someone, oh, now you're just opening the door for other people to jump in the ring. No, I don't. No, I'm not. You will go to jail if you jump in there. And if you're in there with the wrong guy, you're going to get your ass kicked as well. I remember being in Las Vegas years and years ago. And it was me and Undertaker versus Rock and Steve Austin. And Steve and Rock were in the ring, and I was waiting for Undertaker to come out, or he had just come out. No, I think I was waiting for him to come out. And I looked at Steve, and I looked at the back, and then I got punched in the side of the head. And I remember thinking, why? Two things. A, how did Steve get from the ring to the floor so quickly? And why did he punch me so hard? What, did I, what the hell? And I turned around, and it's a fan. And I reared back and I went to punch him. Dude, I don't care. You know, I punched him in the face. But as I was about to punch him, they cut the uh, they cut the camera angle and went to the ring. You can see this on YouTube. I then went after the guy and attacked him. And Jimmy Tillis, our security guard at the at the time, had the guy held up. And I was like punching the guy in his lower abdominal area, in his groin, in his ball bag. And Austin came out and said, "Hey, kid, calm down." You know things have gone a little bit crazy when Steve Austin is the voice of reason. I wrote about this in my second book, Undisputed. But it's true. It's like I got punched in the face. What if that guy would have, you know, hit me and broke my jaw? What if he would have, you know, uh, caved in my orbital bone? That happens sometimes as well. I don't know what happened, but he punched me, and I damn well went after him. And what kind of criminal charges were filed against me? Zero. Because it's my right. It's like I said the other day. If you come in my house at 3 in the morning through the window and I catch you and I hit you with a baseball bat, I ain't going to jail. You are. And you're going to the hospital. 
This happened to me a few times. I remember another time I wrote about this in Undisputed. I was in the ring cutting a promo in Greenville, South Carolina. A guy ran down the ring, down the rampway as fast as he could, and he was coming in. And I was like, okay, I'm waiting for him. And as I was ready. As soon as he went through that bottom rope, I was going to kick him in the head as hard as I could. David Beckham would have been proud. Field goal. Goal! Didn't have to do it, though, because Charles Robinson, little Nate, Doc Amon grabbed him, pulled him out on the floor, had him in the back in cuffs. There you go. See you later, pal. You know, it even happened to me on the streets outside of the arena in Victoria when I was surrounded by an unruly mob that were mad at me because I, quote-unquote, screwed over Shawn Michaels doing my job as a heel, kicking in my rent-a-car. I opened the car door. I said, get the hell out of here. I thought the security would take care of it. They didn't. They surrounded me. I got in a fight with a fan. Got in a fight with two fans. One of them was a girl. I did not punch her in the face, although some people think I did. I did not, but I had to physically push her back. Was it assault? No. It was protecting myself from these fans who inserted themselves and started kicking in my car. Same thing. It's even worse, though, when you jump into the ring. And I will say this in Victoria, uh, I was exonerated. All charges were dropped against me, and I was asked if I wanted to press charges against the two people that attacked me because witnesses and the police had decided they were criminally, uh, criminally to blame and were to be criminally sentenced, not me, because I was protecting myself as a performer. Vince McMahon had my back. Because he knew I shouldn't have been put in that position. Because when someone attacks you, you don't know. I remember thinking when that guy kicked in the side of my rental car, oh my gosh, is this guy going to try and shoot me? Is he going to try and kill me like Daryl got killed? Am I going to get stabbed like Monica Sellis? You know, that's bad, bad news. So I'm telling you right now, I understand. When you come to the WWE show, you want to have fun. All right? When you come to the Fozzie show, you want to have fun. But those days are done. No more jumping on stage unless we invite you. And please don't get in the ring. You have to be half crazy or totally drunk or high or whatever it may be to get in the ring. But don't do it. It's going to end up bad. You're either going to get hurt yourself or you're going to end up in jail. Either way, it's not a good deal, okay? I love all you guys. I know some people want to be smart asses and say, oh, Jericho this, Jericho that. Listen, I'm telling you, for your own good, stay out of the ring. It's not going to end well for you. All right? Deal? Do we have a deal? I'll tell you what, if you don't jump in the ring or jump on stage at a Fozzie show uninvited, I'll give you Eli Roth. How does that sound? All right. I'm not going to actually give him to you like a, like a cannibal to, to take him away and, and, and eat him, but I'm going to give you a great conversation with Eli today. So that's the deal, right? You stay out of the ring and you'll get an amazing interview with Eli Roth. Good? Good? Okay? Okay. Sounds like a good plan? All right. There are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos. Hey, amigas. See? Already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. 
For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Talk is talk is talk is Jericho. I always wanted to be a surgeon, but the boards would not pass me. Can you guess why? Are we wearing headphones? Uh, do you tell me then? Well, you know, I learned from uh, William Shatner. Yes. He said, why do I need headphones? Because I'm talking to you in the room right now. So I stopped wearing headphones when I was in the room with the guy. You know, I, I never understood. Sometimes I go to radio shows and then like they're like, huh, hey, we've got a crazy captain of the beat. We've got Eli Roth here. Whoa, scary guy. I'm hostile. Uh, and you come in and you put the headphones on and it's like I forget how to talk. Yeah, I'm like expecting a delay or something, and then so yeah, I'm going to take mine off. See, and we learn this show business uh, lessons. Yes, from William Shatner. From William Shatner, as as we learn acting lessons and life lessons, everything, singing lessons, (laughs) musicality. We learned William Shatner (laughs) from his rendition of Rocket Man. So I have to tell you though, um, speaking of 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 different funny things that we know that are private to us. Uh, so I, 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 I had this experiment of I'm going to have Scott Bayo on the show. I listened. Okay. The greatest. That made me so happy. Very does not want to come in the studio. He wanted to do it from home. I'd never met Scott before. And I'm like, how am I going to break the ice of this guy? So I opened up uh, with a conversation about so your... funny. My obsession was zapped. Was zapped. And your Q&A that you had with him. And he we was did. He was off and running. The Q&A or the Q&Bayo, as we called it. <laughs> it was weird because, you know, his. I remember his manager was like, Scott... I was, like, I was like, we can do a screening of Zapped because I own a 35mm print. Actually, two 35mm prints. You of own Zapped. them. I own it. That one, which, one was a gift from Quentin Tarantino. He's like, happy Hanukkah. And it was a print of Zapped. <laughs> now, the only place you can show it really is at Quentin's Theater, the New Beverly, which only shows 35mm projection. Oh. And so I did a screening where I, Zapped is kind of a, it's a loosely remake of Carrie. Mm-hmm. It's the same movie, the same plot. Telekinesis, it's a parody of Carrie. Telekinesis. He, you know, he's at the prom at the end. Like everything. Which I never noticed till you pointed yeah, out. Yeah, and there's, totally a, there's a scene where Carrie's on a bike and someone's like, crazy Carrie, crazy Carrie. And she uses her powers and the kid falls off the bike. They do a reference where someone drives, rides by Bayo and goes, Barney Bonehead. Like, they do lot kid falls of, down, a lot yeah. of Carrie, Carrie references. So I did a double bill where we screened Zapped and Carrie back to back. The, you know, the screening Zapped, William Cat came, PJ Souls. It was, it was a good crowd, but for, that was for Carrie. But for Zapped, it was completely sold out. <laughs> And Bayo, I just I was so excited I was watching the movie with Scott Bayo because I remember my dad taking us to see that in 1982 and actually my brothers and I watching my father go to the theater manager and demand the money back because how can they sell tickets to such garbage? Which of course in our minds then canonized it as the greatest film of all time. The only movie that ever made my dad demand money back and we just couldn't believe that was happening. So it has like a very special place in our hearts and the screening... You know, his manager was like, it can't be like some kind of 80s, like, Mm. let's make fun of the movie. I was like, no, my my love is pure for this movie. It reminds me of a lost form of of movie where, you know, I think John Hughes came in and everything became very serious and the teen issues became real. But there was this period in like the late 70s, early 80s where there were these kind of California set 
sex comedies and you just as a kid growing up in the snow in Massachusetts where people just getting punched in the face as it was in Canada, Canada you're like as well. God these girls just roller skate to school in bikinis in California wow everyone in high school looks like they're 30 California looks amazing so because <laughs> you're talking of, about like hard bodies yeah hard, uh, exactly yeah uh, uh, hot spring moves, break yeah. spring, spring break is yeah. a good one I watched spring break summer job oh, the screen. <laughs> spring break holds hot. up though where they had the belly flop contest yep and the guy's like 30 feet high well, there, there's a whole theory that I have which is fat guy cool guy nerd which is if you have a cool guy and a nerd it's like cool guy plus nerd equals romantic comedy that's like oh the cool guy and they're, they're both vying for the girl and maybe the girl goes to the nerd at the end but if you throw in a fat guy it's like all bets are off like then it's because then they worked as a team to get laid like if you look at Last American Virgin or Gorp the McDorfus character often played by Jim Greenleaf kind of a pre-Chris Farley early 80s fat guy and by the way I'm doing this without the help of IMDb this is yes, this actual is just mind. And like no... Jim Greenleaf who's amazing as McDorfus and Gorp like it, it, once the fat guy's there then the fat guy has sex with so the nerd sister so he was McDorfus in one movie and Gorp in another no Gorp is the movie directed by Joe Rubin directed stepfather it's called Good Old Gorp stands for Good Old Fashioned Raisins and Peanuts it's a camp it's a summer camp movie oh with I've Dennis... never saw Gorp oh it's terrible with Dennis... Dennis... Dennis Quaid and oh. Fran Drescher are wow, in the movie okay. yeah and uh, he's also in Joysticks mm-hmm. uh, in Joysticks like the actually the poster of Joysticks are two girls in like short skirts playing a video game and it's it's like airbrushed Jim Greenleaf like crushed into a video game console looking up their skirts <laughs> like they all took the Belushi moment from Animal House like kind of Belushi and Animal House like we need the crazy guy so but if you throw in a fat guy it's it really follows the lemon popsicles formula there are these Israeli sex comedies directed by uh, mm. Boaz Davison that it's it actually is a, the birth of fat guy cool guy nerd because they the first one is kind of serious then lemon popsicles 2 hot bubblegum is remade as last american virgin it's Last American Virgin scene for scene. It's the same director. <laughs> Lemon Popsicles 2, Hot Bubblegum. It's the best. Then there's Lemon Popsicles. I forget what Lemon Popsicles 3 is, but Lemon Popsicles 4, they go in the Navy. That's up. No, that's the Army. That's Private Popsicles. Lemon Popsicles 6, Up Your Anchor. But by the time they're in, like, the Army, the, the, like, the hot guy, Benji, he, or it was Benji, like, the main guy, he already became kind of a big movie star. There were huge hits in Israel and oddly in Germany, other places. There are these Israeli so comedies. Jewish TNA Jewish thing comedies. like super Jewish TNA comedies. Uh, the, the Lemon Popsicles made by the people that were the Canon Group that made all those like awesome Chuck mm, Norris yes. missing in action movies. Franco was like, Franco Nero was always the heel. Wasn't yeah, Frank. It? Yeah, yeah for, uh, Bud Spencer was in a lot. But it was also it was Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus. Like anything that's that like as a kid, it was Canon, like the Octagon or Invasion USA. They they, they were the Howling was in that maybe. Yeah, I think the Howling may have been a Canon movie. Yeah, there there were a whole bunch of movies that were Canon. These great great films made by the Canon Group that kind of took over pop culture for a while and um you know they but for a while they they did these movies in israel the lemon popsicles movies that were these huge successes but by by number four like one guy isn't in the movie and they more so like hey we got a letter from him and then like get the voice of like hey guys hope you're having fun in the army they're like hey you remember the time and they already flash back but basically you can see like the first lemon popsicles is like a real drama. Like it's a fantastic period movie set in the 50s, kind of a coming of age. It's much more at the standby B end of the spectrum. But the fat guy falling in the pool like clearly works up like by Lemon Popsicles 2, it starts with like the fat guy and he gets buried up to his neck in sand. And it's like, where are you guys going? And then a kid comes over and pisses on his head. <laughs> Lemon Popsicles 3, it's almost like they took all the heart out. They just It starts with the fat guy climbing on the roof of the girl's shower at the public beach where all the girls are naked and of course the roof falls, falls in. 
it's just that joke over and over and over. But they're amongst my favorite films. Um, and I remember that kind of in the mid-'80s when sex just stopped, when the John Hughes movies came in. And all of a sudden, it was like, whoa, what happened? Like, all the stuff that I loved in yes. movies, the Porky's, you know, Porky's exploded. That created Screwballs. the modern... Screwballs. Yeah, by the way, Screwballs, another excellent example, Canadian film, mm-hmm. one of your fellow Canadians, a fat guy, cool guy, nerd. Melvin Jerkowski. Melvin Jerkowski. Jerkowski! Howard Bates, detention! (laughs) Like, I remember those movies so... I have a Blu-ray of Screwballs. It's so funny now to go back and look at those movies and kind of understand the order in which they were made and who was ripping off what. Mm -hmm. I really have a soft spot for this. But when we showed Zapped, it was like... I told Bay, I was like, there is something, like, him and William Ames are so funny. It's Scatman Crothers coming off of The Shining. Like, imagine you're Scatman <laughs> Crothers, and you just did The Shining with Stanley Kubrick, and now Jack you're Nicholson. like, in Jack Nelson, and now you're with Scott Bayo and superpowers. And they said that Scatman Crothers was, like, high the entire They were like, oh, his sure. trailer just reeked of weed. So just great stories like that. But, but the movie Zapped, it's just fun. Like, there's no pretension about it. It's not like trying to be a deep movie. It just goes for the gag. And of course, it has Heather Thomas, who was like the but ultimate the, 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 80s then The thing was, though, was it really her bare breasts, or was it a body double? Body double. I'd always heard of it was a body it's double. Of course, it's a body double. Yeah. We have to find I mean, we sh- probably shouldn't know that, but bursting everyone's bubble across the nation. Yeah, I know. Double. It is a body double. But here's, here's something else that's funny, and uh, I just text you. Actually, I didn't text you, but I Instagrammed it, and I tagged you on it. So I have this little uh, group of, of my nieces. We call ourselves the BFF club we're the best friends mm-hmm. forever club and it kind of harkens back to my old school cheap ass movie days when yes. i used to get together with the gang and watch bad horror movies except for now we watch all the horror movies that are coming out because there's one every month that comes out yeah there's so many we're now. watching you know it follows we're watching babadook we're watching sinister insidious blah 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 so the other day i'm like all these movies are some are good some aren't so good but they're all the same tone yeah. I'm going to show you one of my favorites, and I put in Sleepaway Camp Part 2. Amazing. Which, of course, you don't need to watch one. No, of course. By the way, that's the beauty of all those movies. And no Part 1 required. No, you don't need to do your homework. And that's There's the thing. No it's another kind of lost art of making horror movies, and that is kind of this screwball TNA with these over-the-top, gruesome deaths that don't make any sense. But that was a whole other genre that's kind of forgotten now as well. Completely. You know, they... they it really became about it's weird how it comes full circle because now that it is the kind of people the creepy kid in the house there's a certain sort of look and that's again you know kind of getting to green inferno one of the things i'm most proud of the movie is that it looks absolutely nothing like any of these movies Mm -hmm. it's like a beautiful lush jungle picture and it's not night it's not people it's like kids going into the amazon to protest and we did a screening um kind of like a test screening with audiences and people were like it looks so different it doesn't feel like like we've never seen it it's gruesome and scary and terrifying but it doesn't feel like these other movies and those early 80s and that those early 80s slasher movies it really became about what's you know how how do we kill these get a new group of kids Mm -hmm. jason's never gonna die what weapon do they use okay i remember when they got to friday 13th part five and he's like sticking roman candles with someone's (laughs) face you're like Wow, are we that? I remember as a kid being like, wow, are we that out of weapons? There were Roman candles already? The one like, I like to sleep with Cam too is when she uh, shoves her down the outhouse with a big yeah. stick. Yeah. And she comes up a few times covered in leeches and then like dies. Like, if you got thrown in an outhouse, you wouldn't die. No, you wouldn't. As You'd Schindler, be stinky. As, as Schindler's List showed when the kids attached. were sitting in the latrine hiding from the Nazis. Yeah, you I was would. like, yeah, 
totally disproves. You would maybe we should do a back to back screening. Poop on you, yeah. but like, and the leeches in there. Like, are you pooping out leeches? I'm not sure about it, but it was over the top ridiculosity, absurd. And those were fun, and that and that became kind of the aesthetic for a while. Was this those sequels? It stopped being about what was scary, and it started being about how can we kill the kids. And in a crazy way, that is what did in horror. You know, mm-hmm. suddenly Freddy Krueger was the scariest villain anyone had ever seen in Nightmare on Elm Street one. But then, if you remember, at that time, the mid-80s, the craze was every time Schwarzenegger killed somebody, he made a pun. Right. Good call. And suddenly, you're watching Commando, and it's like, where's Solly? I let him go. Like, it started with I'll Be Back, which wasn't a pun, but everyone said, but they realized, like, oh, whatever Arnold says becomes a catchphrase. So then he made a joke, and you're like, oh, wow, he's killing people and making a pun about it every time. So then... Freddie can't talk. No, Jason can't talk. Michael Myers can't talk. But Freddy Krueger starts doing Arnold Schwarzenegger jokes. And he's like, have a knife day. You know, <laughs> don't lose your head. So by Elm Street 3, not only are you looking for the death, like the part of the fun of Freddy was like he was going to make a funny joke about it. Right. So then by, but then by the time he gets to 4 and 5 and 6, like he's not scary anymore because you're watching it and enjoying the killer so much. He's a parody so of himself and he's, he's so much more interesting than the people he's killing. Exactly. Right. And then so then all of a sudden everyone said, well, it doesn't really matter. These kids are just fodder anyways. We're just going to like you know, just put in six new kids, give this one, okay, that's the nerd, that's the jock, that's the hot girl, these two are going to have sex, and what's the weapon? Because you're not there to get scared anymore, you're there to just watch a new group of cattle being mm-hmm, slaughtered. Mm-hmm. And that's okay, and those are fun, but nobody was focusing on what was scary, and the box office died, and then they kind of were relegated to straight-to-home video. And I remember by the time it was the 90s, it was like people were like, oh, horror's dead. You know, horror became synonymous with crap because it had gotten so far away from the days of, like, Ridley Scott making Alien or Kubrick mm-hmm. making The Shining or Spielberg making Jaws or Phil Coffin making Invasion of the Body Snatchers. You know, you had A-list directors. You had the best directors in the world were like, now I'm going to make a horror movie. Like, Richard Donner's like, now I'm going to do yeah. The Omen. So it, they, these were events. So all of a sudden, horror just became, well, nobody even really cares. You don't need character, plot, or story. And that's why with, I remember with Cabin Fever, with Hostel, the, all yeah, those guys, we, we all tried to bring back the kind of 70s, taken, aesthetic. You've always taken the influences yeah. and, and the uh, kind of some of those ideas, but you always kind of led a little bit of a renaissance of what was going on in horror at the time. By recreating that. Like, Cabin yeah. Fever was basically a disease movie. Yeah, it was but, Evil Dead. Yeah, Evil of, Dead. Yeah. But it was funny. It's a cabin movie. It had yeah. some great stuff in there. I, I know you just saw on Instagram that the old guy in the shop yeah, Robert passed Harris away. Robert away. Harris. He was so funny. But that was your first kind of foreignness. And then Hostel, same thing, because the kids that died, you cared about them. Yeah. You like them. I, sp- I made the audience sit for 45 minutes to get to know them yeah. so that you're on vacation with them, making the decisions you make with them. And then all of a sudden, I killed the one you like. The most likable one. I killed them. I killed them first on purpose because I wanted the audience to feel like, well, we don't know this guy really and we don't really like him. I wanted everyone to feel as uncomfortable and lost mm-hmm. because the guy we've identified with, the guy we made the choice with, the one we like, the one we're rooting for is suddenly taken out from under us. So I wanted everyone else to kind of feel like the Jay Hernandez character who then has to it's – it's the moment when he goes back into the building. He could leave, but he goes back to save the girl that you're like, I like him. And then you're with him for the rest of the movie. But mm-hmm. up until – there's a period where you're basically kind of daring the audience to stay with you going, I've just killed your most favorite. I've just killed the character that you like the most and this guy you don't like and I'm now going to make you kind of retrace the whole mystery mm-hmm. and rediscover it with someone you don't like or don't want to root for. 
And that was the fun of making a movie like that is is challenging the audience. It's it's also I think that the the best horror movie is one where the director really has confidence that the audience is going to be with him. When I'm watching a horror movie and every five minutes there's a dent. And they do a loud noise and a jump scare. You feel like the director's insecure. Like, oh, I'm so worried that no one's going to pay attention, that the audience doesn't have an attention span to get into this with these characters. And I always give, you know, I always try to make a movie for the smartest audience possible. I don't dumb it down. I might have, like, silly, or good, you know, stuff in there. But, um, you know, I want people to have to sit there for a minute. And I trust, I trust the audience. And then what happens is that the audience kind of, you build this relationship where they are like, okay, this person, I was coming in for a horror movie and it's not horror. And I'm getting into the characters. This person, and it actually, by not scaring them in that first half, you're actually making them going, okay, if there hasn't been, like, I'm enjoying this, but if the fact that this hasn't been a, a scary movie yet, right. like something so up is coming, I don't even want to know it's coming. Like, if they're holding back this long, the audience psychology is they just start to dread what's coming in the back half of the film. And, you know, in Green Inferno, it's these kids, like, it, it was such an amazing, you know, it's an ensemble cast. These kids, they're all going from Columbia. You know, it's, it's, I followed the tradition of the old cannibal movies, the Cannibal Holocaust, Cannibal Pharaohs. It's a very niche subgenre. Even for horror fans, they're not popular. But I watch these movies now, and there was, there was this run that started in 72 yeah. to about 85 where, the, like, about 10 movies were made where these directors really went into the jungle. They went they in Colombia, in Peru, and they, they made these movies that you look at them and they look so real that people look like they're not acting. You're like, they must have actually killed people. Well, Cannibal people. Holocaust, actually, wasn't there some charges levied against them because people thought it was actually real? Yeah. Like they actually the, found tapes of people dying? Yeah, the director, Ruggiero Deodato, got brought up on murder charges, and he had to, and he had the actors. This is so funny. This is the thing about 1980s. You could do this. <laughs> he had the actors sign an agreement that they would disappear for a year and not act. Really? So that people thought, yeah, they did it. The wow. actors in Cannibal Holocaust actually disappeared for a year and didn't act for a year and do anything public because it, then he spread the rumor that they really this because they were was portraying real. it as a found footage real. movie. It's found footage. We found these kids were in the jungle. They made a movie. It's before Blair Witch. They're like this is real. These people really died. And then they, he was accused of murder and brought up. And he had to fly the actors in to prove <laughs> they were still alive and bring in the girl that was on the. It was the makeup girl and say she was on a bicycle and show the photos of how wow. they did the pole coming out of the girl's mouth. And it looked. It, it just looked. No one had seen. The thing that's so cool is that Ruggiero Deodato, the director. In Italy, they have this apprentice. The way you work to become a director is you apprentice a master. Mm -hmm. You become an assistant director. In the U.S., if you're an assistant director, you're not going to direct. You'll be a production manager, then a line producer, maybe a producer. But you're really like, you're not, it's not creative work. It's really like very production heavy. And some creativity, but it's really production heavy. Italy is different. Italy, back then, you would work as an assistant director to a master before you went on to do your own movie. And the two people that Ruggiero Diodato, that, that were his masters, one is Roberto Rossellini, who is, was married to Ingrid Bergman. He's the, mother, he's the father of Isabella Rossellini. But he directed, he created, he was like one of the, the architects of neorealism. There's a whole movement, kind of post-war Italy. What is this? Bicycle Thieves, Rome Open City, these very realistic stories portrayed with non-actors about the struggle of the people trying to come to terms with how to rebuild their country in fascist Italy after World War II has ended when they're being rebuilt, when their whole country's devastated, everybody's out of work, and crime is on the rise, and there's huge depression in the country. They made these very, very realistic movies, and it started this whole movement that was called Italian neorealism. Then that kind of changed. La Dolce Vita, Fellini ushered in a new era in the 60s of, like, the Marcello people kind of, like, that were 10 years from that that were having fun and spending money and bringing, like, kind of partying back to Italy. But Roberto Rossellini, and, again, it's not my area of 
expertise. He he was really the founder. When you, people look up a movement in film of neorealism, it's Rossellini. And that's where Tudeodato, one of the directors he learned from. The other one he, assi- he assisted was Sergio Corbucci. Now, Corbucci created on-screen violence. It was Corbucci and Sergio Leone in Spaghetti mm-hmm. Westerns. In America, in a Western, if you look at High Noon or any of these films, there's no blood. Right. They get shot because there were rules. But in Italy, they didn't know that was a rule. So when they were making movies and they were shooting them in Spain, and the other thing that they did was they put in electric guitar music, which had never been done, <laughs> and on-screen blood, like Clint Eastwood. Suddenly, there's a whole new aesthetic, the Italian spaghetti westerns. But the big ones were, you know, it's, it was Django. The original Django was directed when Tarantino's Django is an homage to Sergio Corbucci. Mm-hmm. So the two directors that Deodata worked for exclusively, like really learned from, was the master of realism in Roberto Rossellini and the one who really created on-screen violence and gunshots and blood, and that was Sergio Corbucci. And if you put them together, he takes it and he applies it to the cannibal genre and makes a movie that's so real and so violent that he gets brought up on murder charges. (laughs) So I look at that and I think that's cool. Like, I'm actually looking at the DNA of Italian film history and how they kind of created this guy who comes out with him did the movies with the barbarian twins he's done a ton of movies <laughs> but the one he's sort of known for and cannibal holocaust was trashed when it came out people thought it, but now it's funny that in sort of the wake of the green inferno all the people that trashed cannibal holocaust like, roth's film is garbage it's never going to be the master of the cannibal holocaust and it's not trying to be <laughs> of course but there were all these other ripoffs and berto lenzi who did a lot of crime movies did one called cannibal ferox which we saw as make them die slowly mm-hmm. but what's so funny is all the directors started casting each other's actors so the lead actor of cannibal holocaust is in Make Them Die Slowly. It's very incestuous trying to figure out which one is which if you, you can't. don't know. Yeah, I'm you still not sure can't. which one you is can't. which. And I've sat there and I, and I do a thing with well, the cannibal ferox, which was called Make Them Die Slowly. As a kid, you're like, what's a ferox? Right, what, what is a ferox? Mean? What does it mean? It's like the, the ferocious, the ferocity, the myth of the ferocious okay. cannibal. Because the woman's, the plot is she's going to the jungle to show that do men inherently eat other people or are they, do they only eat because of forced colonialism? Is it all the white people that are trying to <laughs> make them savages or you are they political with their cannibal the myth movies. of the cannibal it is there was a whole thing in there and that's in you know it's it's in there I've seen the interviews the directors and now I know all these guys and they're really funny they were all trying to outdo each other but they would cast the same actors in different parts then the title gets changed a bunch of times like Cannibal Ferox make them die slowly eaten alive but then the way you made a movie back then like when when it was fascist Italy the, you weren't allowed to record sync sound like when you record a movie the sound and the picture are Separate, like you have like the sound and the picture and the mm-hmm. magic. Now it's you know it's different. But you're recording with microphones. Back then, you weren't allowed to do that. Like when oh. Fellini made his because the government Mussolini had to oversee every, all the dialogue and all the films. So the the studios were built near the airport. So there's always airplanes going by. So the dubbing, dubbing was part of the aesthetic of an Italian movie. And that so during wartime. Every movie that was made, there would be a government official and the actors that were looping the movie, that were dubbing it. So they, they all kind of have this quality when everyone is talking. And the voices don't really match the distance. It doesn't feel very natural. They actually didn't soundproof the stages until they shot Gangs of New York. Wow. So in the 70s and 80s, what they started doing was they started shooting movies in Italy, realizing, okay, if we have Italian actors that speak English... Even with terrible thick accents, it doesn't matter because we're going to dub them anyways. So let's just – and then let's try and pass them off like they're American movies. 
So they would. I remember as a kid, like you'd see a movie called Demons. Now that's Demoni by Lamberto Bava, but that yeah. was completely an Italian film with an entirely Italian cast. In the movie theater. In a movie theater, but yeah. you're like, why is this dubbing? Why is it so weird? And they do like a couple of shots of a street in New York and then inside some cavernous apartment that now you can see is Rome. But I remember as a kid, you're like, why is this movie from another planet? Like there's something. But in the cannibal movie specifically, they would have the same three male actors dub them. Yeah, there's one guy who talks like this. Every actor talks like that. And you realize you're like, so you're watching an actor you've seen in Cannibal Holocaust, but now he's in Cannibal Ferox, but he's using the same voice you've heard in 16 other movies. Yeah. You're just like, I don't understand. Why is this so confusing? Why is this so confusing? And you get this weird sensation going, haven't I seen this movie? And so you're like, oh no, that's the one where the dick gets cut off. Oh, that's the tits through the hooks. Like, Which he, is the one where the turtle gets cut in the half. Tur- that's both. That's, that's Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal so Ferox. Make it even more confusing. Yes, it made it even more confusing. They did the same animal death. So it's it's all insane. But I wanted to go and make a movie. I feel that movies now are made so safe. Like there's I mean, yeah, obviously there's Tom Cruise hanging off the side of a plane. But in general, it's it they, they don't have that kind of danger and sense of adventure where you watch the movie and you go, Whoever made this movie was completely crazy. Like right. who would do that? Like Werner Herzog. Like Werner Herzog. Right. And that's where we shot like, where we shot Green Inferno. The last movie that shot there was Aguirre the Wrath of God by Werner Herzog wow. in 1972. The nickname is the Pongo Aguirre, the Aguirre River. That's what they call it, the Rio Wayaga. You know who's living large at my house? My three cats, Mr. Mittens, Indy, and Snickers. And you know why? Because we switched them to Pretty Litter. Okay, so it's really me and my wife and my daughters who are living large, thanks to Pretty Litter. Because Pretty Litter's ultra-absorbent crystals trap odor instantly, so no more bad cat smells in the bathroom. Pretty Litter crystals last up to a month, so less cat litter box cleaning for all of us, and less fighting about whose turn it is to clean the litter box. I gotta deal with this fight every single week between my daughters. This makes it so much easier. Pretty Litter also ships right to our front door, so no more last-minute mad scramble runs to the store because we're out of kitty litter. And Pretty Litter has another cool feature that makes life just a little easier. It helps us keep tabs on our cat's health. It changes colors so you can monitor early signs of potential illnesses like urinary tract infections and kidney issues. It's easily the best thing we've done for ourselves and our cats in a very long time. Like I said, Pretty Litter helps keep tabs on my cat's health and keeps odors down. Those are two big wins in my house, meow. You and your cat are going to love Pretty Litter as much as we do. So go to prettylitter.com slash Jericho and use code Jericho to save 20% on your first order. That's prettylitter.com slash Jericho. Code Jericho to save 20%. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let's just back up for a second. Yeah. So you decide I'm going to make a cannibal movie because, mm-hmm. as we talked about, you did a uh, you know Cabin Fever. There's a little Evil Dead there. Hostel. There's a little bit of certain things there. You want to do a cannibal movie? What do you do? Who do you call? How does it work? Well, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, why is why do we need one? Because you hadn't done mo- a movie directed and written movie yeah. since Hostel Two. Since Hostel Two, a lot of time, long time. By. And I was thinking, like, why? Well, first I wanted to be re-inspired, but I thought. Why do you need this movie? Like, anytime I'm making a movie, I go, "What is the? Per- Why does this movie need to be made right mm-hmm. now? Why? Maybe the genre's dead for a reason." And it originally started with me thinking, "What if you were taken in by cannibals?" And then you, the only way you you'd gone in the to get like ayahuasca, like really cool drugs that you could only get in the Amazon. But then the only way to get out was you like fed the drugs to the to the cannibals. But then they stone cannibals to get the munchies. Like it literally started with that. Be going <laughs> stone. And I'm thinking, how do I reverse an engineer movie where stone cannibals get the munchies? Like that's I'm actually thinking this. And I remember talking with Diablo Cody. I was like, I kind of want to do a movie where stone cannibals get the munchies. And they're like, 
She's like, you have to make that movie. Like, she's like, she's been a huge supporter of mine, and like, she's so hostile to her, in her as her birthday party. Like before, great she, screenwriter too. Yeah, love her. So, and, but she's like, you got to do that movie. And I was thinking, like, what is it? And I thought you couldn't make that movie anymore because all the tribes have been contacted. And I thought that's it. That's the angle in. It's that now mankind has like devastated the Amazon. That there are no tribes left. And that I, what I saw was this kind of behavior, this sort of shaming activism that I, I call slacktivism. Um, there are other terms that have since evolved. What, you know, the clicktivist uh, it got even more specific with social justice warriors. But for me, it started around the Occupy Wall Street, where there was a relative of mine where I was like, what are they doing? They just graduated college. It's like, oh, he's, he's occupying. My mom I was like, what do you mean he's occupying? What, he can't work at Starbucks? They're like, no, he's going to occupy. I'm like, but he just graduated college. I don't think he really cares. I think he just doesn't want to get a nine-to-five job like the rest of us. Right. Like, it's way cooler to be like, the system. And there are obviously, I'm not t- knocking the Occupy movement because I understand it was important. People are frustrated. There's a purpose to it. But there was an overwhelming mass of people that were there because it was the cool thing to do or they wanted to do it. It's just an easy way of avoiding life. Like, I'm sorry. It's true. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that was everyone. And, you know, everyone, I mean, people aren't going to piss for me even saying that, but it's the truth. There were a lot of people there that were like, yeah, it's cool. I talked to girls, just hang out. It's yeah, like, jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, right? let's, let's go o- Occupy. And then the next thing, I remember writing the draft of Green Inferno about these kids hashtagging. And as I finished the draft, Coney 2012 started. And I was like, all of a sudden, your Twitter is like, don't you give a f- about these kids in Uganda and child soldiers and how could you not care about Joseph Coney? I was like, what is this? They're like, Rihanna's tweeting it, Justin Bieber's tweeting it, kid. Like, everyone's going, Coney 2012, Coney 2012. This thing that nobody had heard about six hours earlier, all of a sudden was everybody's life mission. And I was like, okay, that's fine, I get it. Everybody wants to be like, and I thought, do these people really give a shit about what's going on? Are they or, doing anything other than just retweeting? Are the they link? doing anything other than retweeting? Or, which is fine, but, or are, why are they doing it? Are they doing it because they want to look like they're good people? Right. People are tweeting it because. Because if they're so worried, if they don't tweet it, that everyone will think they don't give a shit. So I was like, yeah. that's even worse. And it's interesting talking to – I've talked to Jason Russell, the founder of Invisible Children, and he says that like 90% of the people, he's like, yeah, it was great. We had 100 million views, but so many of them were people that were just like – everyone sort of kind of shaming each other on social media going – It's the uh, ice bucket challenge. Uh, the ice, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Well, by the way, okay, then after that, it was – the next one was Free Pussy Riot. Like, oh, Vladimir Putin. So it's everyone that, like, <laughs> get on these causes for, like, two weeks. An ice bucket challenge for ALS. Like, right. But I not donating it. money, just pouring it just on there. Just pouring yeah. the thing. Exactly. But it, that's fine. Like, I understand that social media can be great. Like, it can be a really important thing. It can raise awareness that you're somehow, like – but then I remember reading an article where it was Bring Back Our Girls, where someone's like, your hashtags are actually hurting because now the U.S. uses this as justification to add more military there. And this whole thing of bring, like, but mm. even the people in Uganda were like, yeah, no, we're well aware of Joseph Kony. We've been trying, tracking him for years. He's in, like, we right. got it under control. Like, I understand. Thank you. You know, <laughs> yeah. and so then this other thing started where people started, and I was not a part of this, so I'm not the expert to speak on it, but people started arguing about misogyny in video games, and people were like, you're a misogynist, you're a... And then someone came up with the term social justice warrior. Like, all these social justice warriors are trying to police. And it's true, like, if you do anything, everyone's like, well, you're not fairly representing us. You're not this and that. And it's like this... All this outrage that everyone starts has poured into this whole culture. I was like, this movie is about that. These are about kids that go to save the Amazon tribe, not because they care, but because they care about looking like they care. Hmm. And there's a whole scene in the beginning where I remember when I was at, at NYU going up to visit my friend at Columbia University, and these two girls were starving themselves in the lawn. I was like, what are they doing? They're like, well, they're really mad that like the janitors don't have health insurance. They're doing a hunger strike. I was like, really? Because those girls are from like Larchmont. Like, what? 
are they doing? Like, and they're like, we're starving for equality, and it's like everybody needs a cause. So I think there's something in people wanting to help and wanting to do good, but it's also about how kids now, they're like, oh, look at the Arab Spring. All you need is your phone. And that's why the main character, played by Lorenza, uh, is, oh, she's, her father's a lawyer at the UN. He's like, no, there's procedure, there's policy. It doesn't change overnight. And then she meets this charismatic guy who's like, old people like all you need is your phone these are our guns you know the phone is the power like you go to a village and you shame them and you get media attention that's the only way to affect change and it's everybody who wants to do it instantly and of course they do it and it kind of works it actually stopped for a moment stops the protest and then the moment that these kids are so elated is when they're you know on the front page of reddit and when they're trending on twitter and cnn retweeted us like that's all they care about like yeah. we're trending we're trending like that's the end goal yeah is to get your hashtag trending so yeah. I, you know, and then they just get taken down, just like the very people that they saved dart them because they think that they're intruders. And I, it was interesting reading, like, kind of reading about different rituals and tribal <laughs> rituals of what people do and how tribes treat invaders and, you know, things that would happen. And it kind of made it fictional. So I made a mash and took bits and pieces of things that you know, they, tribes do to each other, tribes do themselves, tribes do, do to punish. It's pretty, it was, it was so fun to go to an area that these people, where we shot the village, they had never seen electricity before. They'd never seen cameras before. It was their first, like, we literally had to bring How in the concept of a movie. How did It's the best. I went to the Amazon. I went to Peru. Just uh, flew to the Amazon. One-way ticket to the Amazon, please. I went with, sort of. I went with Miguel, who's Spanish, my producer on, we'd done this movie, Aftershock, yeah, together. Yeah, great movie. Thank you. So I acted in that, and I, we had the script for Green Inferno, and he had worked with this producer named Gustavo Sanchez, who had done Motorcycle Diaries in Peru. And they, Miguel read Green Inferno and loved it. And he's like, I think he talked to Gustavo. And Gustavo's like, these are the two cities. Like, the, where Herzog shot Fitzcarraldo, there had been, like, a dengue fever outbreak. So, like, you actually can't go there because everyone could really die. Like, until because the mosquito season was too high. The mosquitoes give you dengue fever. So, they're like, you could try going, well, let's go to Tarapoto. And I said, I'm putting up my own money to just... Go and sort so you this finance out. this yourself? Yeah, okay. like I did with Hostel. I paid ten grand to go to Prague and figure out the movie, and then go. Okay, now I know how to do it. Mm-hmm. I can't just like rely on people in emails. Like I need to go there. I need to see it. I need to have the movie in my head. I need to photograph locations. I need to figure it's going to take an hour. Like I have to actually kind of go and mm-hmm. do it, do the route, and see where I'm going and Makes figure sense. out the movie. And that's where I put my own money into it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to spend fifteen, twenty grand of my own money. I might lose it. I might, but if the movie goes, which then I'm then I'm even more incentivized to do. Because I'm like, I don't want to lose that money. You right. take it back out of the budget. But when people, you're going to investors, you have locations, you have a plan. They go, oh, you went there, you figured this out already. You don't want people going, well, how the hell? Oh, well, don't worry, we'll go. You know, I could show them the village. So right. we went, we flew there, and we looked around, and we and we started looking at different villages and how difficult. They're like, well, this one, and we're, we're like going through hacking through the jungle, and some of this. You're literally this, doing this. Yeah, we're with this guy Miguel at this place called Puma Rinri. And this this echo lodge, and we're looking at one part, and he's like, maybe I'm like, he's like, there's a little piece of land that me, this guy, other Miguel, not my Spanish Miguel, Peruvian Miguel, and he's like, oh, you should go get on a boat, go go to the river in Chazutas, meet my cousin, goes Miguel. So we go to Chazutas, we drive an hour to this town where it's literally like, you know, I mean, shacks, people in bare feet, and there's like four like small motor boats, and. We go, who's Miguel's cousin? And this is the Peruvians who are doing this. They're like, I'm Miguel's cousin. Like, Miguel sent us. Can you take us up the river? And he's like, yeah. So we give him money for gas. And this 10-year-old kid runs up. And five minutes later, this kid, and I was like, oh, no, this little kid. (laughs) It's like out of a movie. I'm like the white guy there with my mosquito netting. And this freaking 10-year-old kid with a stick with two red gas cans on either side of him runs down the hill 
And they put it in the boat, and he goes, let's go. So we just get in the boat with Miguel. And we're going up, and they're like, this is Rio. Uh, this is where he shot Gary the Wrath of God. And it's, look, it looks exactly like the Herzog movie from 40 years earlier. And we're going, and we're going. Finally, Miguel's cousin goes, this is just jungle for the next 20 hours. We have to turn around because we'll run out of gas, which none of us want. So we mm-hmm. turn around. We're going about two or three hours up the river. So we turn. It's 100 degrees. It's beautiful. but there's nothing. And we come, we're going back. And the first thing I see is like, on the way back is this straw hut. And I was like, what is that? And like, that's in Pueblo. It's a village. So we pull up and there's a girl and she's washing clothes in the river. And I go, can we get out and look around? And so the Peruvians go out and they talk to her high and they're like, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's a protected land. They're farmers. And like, it's literally like straw huts and hammocks. Hmm. And this woman comes out with a baby and the Peruvians go up and they go, do you mind if we look around? They're like, yeah, sure. They were super nice. The kids come right over to me and they're like looking at my iPhone and looking at the camera. And they were like super friendly. Like everyone is really, really nice. And I'm looking around. I'm like, oh my God, this is so isolated. This is, this could be the village. Cause you could point the camera in any direction. There's, there's nothing. nothing. There's no wires. There's nothing. There's no electricity. There's nothing. And, I go, can we shoot here? And they go, well, first we have to explain to the village what a movie is. Because most of the wow. people here, there are 300 people in the village. Like, mostly, there's no boats. They're like, they just like, there's a canoe to go kind of next door. How hard is that to believe in this day and age that never even heard of what a movie is? You know, I didn't believe it until I went there. Hmm. And then you see it and you're like, oh, yeah, I know. It's so hard to get there. It's so difficult to reach where they are in such adverse conditions. Like, there's not... They'd never, they'd never heard of it. They didn't know what a television was. Wow. So we, they said we'd, so we went back. Like, we talked about it. We're like, I really want to make this work. So we bought, like, candy and food. Like, we, let's go back to the village and do, like, a longer scout and talk to some of the people there. And they did. And I went around and took pictures. And the kids saw me. And we had, you know, candy and cookies and stuff. And then they called. They're like, well, we're going to come back here and we're going to screen a movie. And the village will vote. The elders of the village must decide. So finally, like, I'm back in Chile. And we get the phone call and going, guess what? We got permission for the village. What movie did you show? Well, that's what I asked. I was like, what did you show? Like, E.T., Wizard of Oz? <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust. What? <laughs> they showed, the Peruvian producers showed the village, the children, everybody, the 300 people in the village, Cannibal Holocaust. They go, no, 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 don't worry. They thought it was a comedy. Like dicks being chopped off. They thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. They thought it was hilarious. Because they knew it wasn't real? They knew it wasn't real. Wow. And, and the thing is like, they've never had movies. They have no television, but they have storytelling. I mean, that's like part sure. of the tradition. They have local legends. And they understood it completely. They were like, oh, this is theater. This is pretend. This is storytelling. And... So they all voted to let us come in. They, they, originally, they, they said, well, how can we... We were, gonna, we were paying them, but they said it's also difficult for anyone to leave to spend money. Like, you maybe wait for mm-hmm. a boat that comes by selling stuff once or every couple of weeks, but most of the people couldn't even leave. So they all decided... First, we're going to get a boat. Then they said, let's give them 100. They want tin roofs on their houses. So we gave, we trucked, we like in the boats, brought out 103 tin roofs wow. for the village. That was amazing. So we, we go there and like... But our, our production designer... Marici had to go and like there were a couple of more there was a school that was a more modern looking building with wood and we like we had to kind of like dress it out and build the cage where the kids are kept and I mean there, there's no electricity there's nothing and after after she was going to leave to go back to Santiago to do the other sets they said the village is like we have a gift for you and she's like what and they brought her a baby it was like a two year old she's like what is this they're like we, it's our gift She's like, I live with my boyfriend in Santiago. Like, I can't. So she had to like politely decline their baby. A baby, baby, yeah. Like, that's what we can give you is a baby. Here you go. Wow. But then, but then when we were shooting, like, we went there the first day. Like the the cold drinks. Like we brought a coolers with Gatorades and stuff. They'd never had refrigerated drinks. Of course, and why every, not? Yeah. everyone in the village, like the old people, they were all like, everyone starts playing with the ice. 
because they'd never seen ice before. And you're like, oh my God. And of course, why would they? Why right? would they? Yeah. And then we, there was a scene with two of the girls that we, for some logistic reason, had to shoot outside the village. So that, that girl that I saw washing clothes is like one of the lead girls in the movie. She's fantastic. And they're all such good actors because they weren't camera conscious. They weren't self-conscious they of weren't anything. They weren't trying to act. They weren't trying yeah. to act. They're just like, do whatever you want. But we did like little, our assistant director went out there and did like little games and exercises just to see who could listen and who was better. So I'd seen like videotapes of all the kids in the village and we could kind of narrow down who were the best ones um but they were amazing the whole village loved it like it was we became like a family we were there for three weeks in that village and there were but it was i mean every day we, you know there were days we almost died there were so snakes, like when, that, when you're shooting three weeks are you living in this village for three weeks no uh but we had to be prepared to stay there you know you get up at five in the morning and you get in the land rover and you drive to to chazutas to the town and there you get in the boats and go an hour and a half up the river so maybe you land in the village depending on the current seven thirty or eight o'clock you unload everything from the boats we had five boats 60 horsepower boats and you're unloading too uh, everything. Yeah. Everything. You're taking you're all involved, your stuff out. But yeah. you're doing this too. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, no, we all are. We all are. Yeah. And then the makeup department has to make up three guys made up 120 villagers. Wow. And we just did it. And it was so hot. It's like, yeah, then it's, it's like 100, 110 degrees, and you just start shooting. We broke for lunch. We built them a kitchen. We built the school a kitchen. Like, we, we kind of upgraded the whole infrastructure of the village. And they said it was funny because the first day we were shooting, it's this scene that you'll see where there's a clip where they're brought to the village where the kids are like, the kids are tied up and we have heads on spikes, you know, the effects guys and like the bodies. It's supposed to look like Colonel Kurtz's village in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like super Apocalypse Now. Like they all come over the hill and they start yanking at the blonde girl's hair and touching their skin and the kids are just like, what? There's completely, it's chaos. So that's the first thing we're doing because it requires the most people and I figured let's break the ice to the biggest scene. So we got the cameras, we got everyone, the canoes, the canoes are very hard. They're carved out of trees and they were hard to control. So the canoes are like, we have the actors tied up and like the, the villagers are dressed like the natives and they're like paddling with these like handmade it's it's like really tricky we're about to shoot and all of a sudden ever there's like some kind of commotion and chaos i was like what's going on what's going on two pontoon boats full of uh missionaries christian missionaries from a super church in texas mix of south america pull up you're kidding me no I, I, you couldn't script this and i i was like what's going on they're like the missionaries here i was like what <laughs> and they see and aaron one of our actresses from texas and knew the church was like no these are like fundamentalist missionaries and they pull up and they see the heads on the spikes and they see the dead bodies and they see the kids <laughs> tied up and they see the villagers and they're like the devil is here the devil is here and they had to and I of course I'm like so happy I'm like grabbing my camera and I'm like roll camera roll camera this is amazing the missionaries like this is the greatest and, and they were like no 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 it's not a joke this is serious like let the village handle it and the village had to go and explain no we're, we're shooting a movie come back in three weeks and they were so mad they started playing music to disrupt us I was like this is like no kidding picked, it's like being picked up by the teams but the heat it was 115 degrees and eventually they left they're like yeah we'll come back in three weeks they got mad because you're filming movies because decided to try and wreck it they the, yeah they were playing, wrecking it by singing songs like they were just like just to you know because they were mad that we got there first oh and everyone's like you know the kids of the fake heads it was it was <laughs> just moments like that which completely you know the last day we were I remember like the string like we all we finished we wrapped like a thunderstorm broke out then a rainbow we were all hugging everyone's crying the crew gets in the boats me and the actors we get in our boat we're like wow we did it we made it to the village and then the guy pulls the motor thing and the cord snapped and we start drifting the opposite way and we're like screaming at everyone going <laughs> we're like hey we're like where are and they all think we're waving and we start going down the river the opposite way so like we're all like what do we do what do we do and the boat starts like spinning we're like this is how it ends this is the story this is our twilight zone and we're 
were like, he has to cut the string off the top of the canvas and like wrap it and like jerry rig it and finally got the motor going. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah he MacGyver the, the He motor? MacGyvered the damn thing. And then we'd be like going home and he would just like stop. And we're like, what is he doing? And then like four of his friends would get in the boat and like, all right, <laughs> guess they're the, like the local. It was just so a crazy. Like, you have, like you have no insurance for this the insurance, it's so funny because the bond company and the insurance, they, you have to have insurance for the completion bond. They dragged out the paperwork until we got back. We actually weren't insured. Like they, they said like – we're like, To help you or to, to hinder you? Because they thought they weren't – they oh. didn't want to give us the insurance like because they thought there's, someone's going down. Yeah. Like there's deadly tarantulas and, and there, what, You saw these tarantulas and, and snakes? And oh, they're all in the movie. Because you'd be sitting there. I've seen where one character's peeing and a tarantula like walks up and almost gets him. And this and, is like, a real poisonous tarantula. Oh no, we're like, I'm like, where's the tarantula? And all of a sudden, you see everybody backing away, and this guy comes in with a stick and puts it down. I'm like, where'd you get it? He's like, it's right over there. Like the scene where, where the kids are tied up, there were tarantulas everywhere. I mean, the entire field was covered in them. And then the tree that we put Lorenza, who I'm now married to, amazingly <laughs> after this, she's tied to the tree. There are these Azula ants. Now the Azula ants. If they bite you, it's like having a gunshot for 24 hours. It's like Ooh. people like kill themselves when they get bit by them because they're, they're like there is no frame of reference for how painful it is from the poison from an Azula Ooh. ant. The tree was covered in them. So now I'm tying Lorenza, your wife, who's like my, my now wife, to the tree. <laughs> and we had to – first we had to like smoke the tree. We had to like burn the bottom of the tree to like get the ants away. And how then, big like, are they? They're, they're like an inch. They're, oh. they're huge. They're giant. You Ugh. see them, they're like, they're, they're these huge ants. They're like little, these little, you could ride one of them, these creatures. So, and then we had to take Lorenza and duct tape. So everyone duct tape their pants to their ankles so that no ant could crawl up into your, into or your foot. Or anything else. Or anything else. Yeah. No, literally, like your cops, like everything had to be duct taped. It was incredible. Scary. Yeah, and then there's a scene where Lorenza goes in a river, and we had like a code. Like, there's no stunt people in Chile. Like, she went in the river, and she had a cord around her neck that was barely like a Home Depot rope. And we had like two guys down the river ready to catch her. In case she fell down the current. And so she, we had like a code word in Spanish for her. To, like, and she was screaming, like, like, whatever it was. The force of the current was so strong and so loud. And she's like really screaming for her life. And I'm watching her going, wow, she's so amazing. She's like... <laughs> But there was no chairs. There was no video village. Like, I, I shot. I operated a camera. I was like, I want to go into the jungle with a machete and a camera and come back with a movie. Okay. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. Eli Roth, as we were talking about, the Green Inferno took about three weeks to film? Well, the, the Peru part. The whole thing was okay. ten weeks. It was... It was Week in New York, gotcha. Then five weeks in Peru, three of that was in the village, and three weeks in Chile. Yeah. So what happened? Did you have a distributor lined mm -hmm. up, and then what went down? Well, this getting, was back in 2012. We shot it in 2012. Film. We <sighs> sold it in 2013 at uh -huh. the Toronto Film Festival, and it was slated to come out in 2014 on September 5th. Mm -hmm. And about in June last year, I get a phone call going, there's a problem. And it was basically without – here's the thing. You can't really go into it. It's, it's just sort of everybody got stuck in a bad situation. The company that paid for the movie was undergoing a transition. And they were no longer in a position to honor the commitment that someone else at the company had made who was, had since left the company or been fired. And 
So suddenly there's this $5 million or piece of money that was supposed to be paid that wasn't going to be paid. And the distributor is like, look, we can't just let you guys break a contract because now it just sets a terrible precedent. Like there's got to be like, like we all had a signed deal. We got to figure out a way to do this. And I have to say the company worldview, the distributor open road, everybody was great. Like instead of everybody fighting into a lawsuit, which is always what happens in Hollywood. I talked to Jason Blum, who's a great producer of The Purge, Paranormal Activity, Insidious, Sinister, and Jason has a deal at Universal. I said, can we move the movie over to Universal into your deal? Like, he has slots. Like, they Mm -hmm. give him, you get to release six movies a year. Can we put this? And he said, you know, I'm actually starting a new kind of division because there's this, this idea that your movie is either Babadook, where it's a VOD movie, or it's, you know, Insidious 3, which is, or Insidious 3, which is, 35 million PA or the gallows where they spend 40 million releasing. And, and he's saying, I think that there's a zone where you can do a medium sized release in the eight to 10 million, whatever that is, put it in theaters and the audience comes out and supports it. Then he's like, I kind of want to do that. Let's do this as the mid sized release. So then that was in August and it took about eight months of all the lawyers going, let's figure this out. Cause we had to get everyone internationally to hold off on their release and delay. It. We had to go one by one going, please delay this for a year. Cause they couldn't let, South America go before the year. It's just basically, I will say this, like Open Road, Blumhouse, and Worldview, it's the only time I've ever actually seen people working together. Hmm. And people said, this is a problem. And I will say this, you know, Open Road, they said, we're not releasing the movie, but we understand that the fans want to see this in a theater and we're not going to deny them that. And Worldview was like in a tough position, but they're like, you know what, we want the the fans to see the movie and let's get it out. Like everybody sat down and said, how can we figure this out? Amazing. Like, I actually am amazed that the movie's coming out in theaters. Like, I've never had that happen where I saw the poster in the theater. I saw the trailer in the theater. You're like, that's it. Like, once they say it, it's coming out. And then in June, they were like, it's not happening. Then we thought, okay, can we do it? And then it fell apart. In August, they pulled it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is actually it. Like, this is really unraveling. Was there ever a point in time when you thought the movie would never get released? Yeah, for sure. Up until about May last year. May of this year, yeah. It was every day. It was going, what's going on? What's going on? And then it, then it became like this crazy obsession where everyone's like, well, yeah, we can't lose. It's like we spent eight months on this. We can't lose. We can't <laughs> lose. We can't lose. But the good news is everybody loves the movie, you know? And then we had it. We finally did a screening and people were like, oh, it's worth the wait. Like it really, people loved that it was so unique, that it was different. And look, we made the movie, you know, most movies are made for a hundred million, two hundred million dollars. We made the movie for five million dollars. Like it's a low budget movie and it's all new faces and there's like a kind of new cast. Like, and it's, the thing is, there's no, there's no type of people like to make movies of which there's another type, you know. But there mm-hmm. isn't, there anything, isn't, there right. isn't anything like it. So it'll either work or be like, but you the know, thing is, too, or this, not. This is, is you know, new faces, but yet it's pretty much the return of Eli Roth to making movies again. I know. I haven't directed a movie since Hostel too. It's crazy. Which no, but there's Knock Knock. Is that Knock Knock is going to come out after okay. October 9th, Yeah. So why such a long break? I mean, you came out of the gates like Eli Roth is the next insert famous filmmaker yeah. here John Carpenter whatever and then three movies boom 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 and then there was I know you went and worked with Quentin acting etc etc yeah. well a lot of things happen you know first to and I can look at this now kind of having about 10 years of distance um, you don't think you're going to take that long of a break mm-hmm. and in my mind I didn't take a break I was just doing other things like I suddenly had all these amazing opportunities open to me like producing like okay I'll right. produce so you know, first, Hostel 1 and 2, I did back-to-back without a break. And it was a crazy thing, especially at that time, to do a movie that costs $4 million, that makes $80 million, and 
all of a sudden you're on like every list for every big studio movie. And that's when the jealousy, like Cabin Fever was fine. People were like, oh, Eli wanted to be, the, you know, Mr. Gore and horror. That's cool. But Hostel was a number one movie and it was Tarantino's name on it. And I just felt this weird shift, like the jealousy of people, uh, you know, that where I just felt this weird energy of like, oh, you're not friends with us anymore. You just want to be around famous people. And all of a sudden you, you feel this thing where I'm sure I change, but you feel like everyone else around you is changing. You know, you're having that moment where your mm-hmm. head is through the ceiling. You're like, oh, my God, like. I'm in every party. I'm in every list. Like, this is insane. You're the new thing in town. Yeah, and, and, and my way of dealing with it was like, I'm just going to go and make another one because I think if I stop and get caught up in this, I'm not going to work. Like, I need to do another movie right away and I force myself to write and I force myself to do it. And then Hostel 2, in the release, everyone, I think, just sort of coasted off, well, it's Hostel, it'll do fine. And there wasn't much thought or effort put into the campaign in the release. And it got put out in June and there were no posts. It just didn't feel like it had the same energy. Mm-hmm. And I remember being really bummed out because I felt like it was a better movie than the first one and being like okay I'm 35 I have like I finally have money I mean I was broke at 30 like mm-hmm. but when I say broke I couldn't afford $600 a month rent without like asking my parents for help it was hard like it was it was crazy and that was you know I was making cabin fever so all of a sudden at 35 you're like wait a minute I don't have to work let me just stop and take a pause and kind of get my head a little bit and you know I just sort of looked at the people I was hanging around with and what I was doing and I wasn't happy and Quentin offered me the chance to play the bear Jew. And I thought, I need to just completely clear my head of everything. I want to hit the reset. I want to reinvent myself. I really want to relearn directing because I'm just learning. You know, the worst thing that can happen to you sometimes is success. Mm-hmm. You know, the best thing that can happen to you is to get your complete, just really get your ass kicked with failure. Because if, if you have something and it's incredibly successful, the problem is you think you're right about everything. Mm-hmm. You're like, and well, so I know. around you tell and so you does that. It, yeah. And then, you, and then when you have a failure, you're like, what happened? I'm vulnerable. Shit. This is this because Hostel Two's box office was not at Hostel One's. It box. wasn't, but it's funny because now if you look at what Hostel Two did, they, they made a Hostel Three. Like mm-hmm. Hostel Two, I still get checks from Hostel Two. Like it's funny how the perception at the time was like the, but but it's almost like I had set the bar so high. I had like record breaking once in a career kind of thing <laughs> yeah. happen on my second movie. So unless I repeat that, which you're never going to do, it's so hard. Like how the hell can you? You know, anything's a disappointment, but obviously the movie made money because they did a third part, which I was not involved in. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's this thing where you're like, oh, my God, I, I, what am I doing? Like, am I just getting caught up in this hamster wheel of, like, I've got to make another movie? Because mm-hmm. you fought your whole life to get in. And like, now you're in the club. You don't want to get out. But, like, Quentin offered me the chance to be the bear Jew. I was like, I'm just going to put directing aside to submit to this process and relearn directing by being an actor and come out as an actor's director. And then after that, I did – I was having fun producing. I did, um, you know – the last exorcism which I really enjoyed even though I didn't make any money off of it it was mm-hmm. a great I had a great time and then Man with the Iron Fist I worked with Riz going let's do this martial arts let's go to China and shoot it with Russell Crowe and Dave Bautista mm-hmm. like it was I was kind of doing stuff that I liked doing in my mind and then it was actually when I did Aftershock it was Nicolas Lopez was like we can't let another year go by without another Eli Roth my full credit goes to Nico because he's like dude and this was in 2012 he's like it's been five years since your last movie you need to shoot a movie this year and I was like uh and then, and then you realize like I don't want to give up that it's so stupid you start thinking like well shit if I make a bomb then it's like oh he peaked at the, you're like right, you can't but, the, right. but then I'm like no that's bullshit I can't get caught up thinking that way you've got to put yourself out there over and over you've got to like you wrote a book it's a bestseller you've got to write another one mm-hmm. you know you do an album you got to do another one you got to you got to keep putting yourself out there and taking chances so we did it. We just sat down and I started working with a co-writer, Guillermo Amoedo, who had worked on Aftershock with Terrific and Nicolas Lopez and I, the three of us, we got the script in shape. We had a whole production team in, in Chile. We got the money fast and 
We shot it. And then I'm so happy that I shot Knock Knock. Like, right after I saw you, like, I was like, okay, Green Inferno's coming out in September. Let me do another movie right before. And in April, like, we wrote it. We sat down. We wrote it in January. We got the money in February. We shot it in April. And it was cut by June. And then when Green Inferno got delayed, I was like, thank God I did another movie. And now I have two movies coming out within One comes after the other. two weeks with each other. So my whole thing now is... I've also cut back on producing other stuff like Clown or these other movies, which is fun. The Sacrament, I love it. I'm proud of them. I think they're great films. But I've realized like my time is so valuable that I just can't give it to someone else's movie. I just can't. It's only got to go to my movies from now on. When you said that you wanted to kind of learn uh, from Tarantino directing, what, what did you pick up from him that, that you didn't know before? Amazing things. God, I learned so much from Quentin. You know, first his... Because uh, you guys are very similar in personality yeah. and such passion for movies. And- he's, he's really... He's, I mean, it's no accident his movies are what they are. And it's not... You know, I remember the knock was, oh, he just steals from old movies. It's such bullshit. It's just mm-hmm. people excusing the fact that this guy's a legitimate genius. And... He really is, it's first and foremost, the character and the actor. And when he sits down, I remember with Inglourious Bastards, we sat down. And he told me, like, you got to know Donowitz like you know your best friend. Like, you, like in the way you think about your best friend, like, whether, you know, you know how they react in any situation. And it's going to be different from three other friends you have. you got to know Donowitz that way. Because that was a big step for you, too, as an actor. You'd only done little scenes Yeah, and now I'm next there, to Brad Pitt and then yeah. Christoph Waltz. And yeah. like, it's real, it's real, it's real shit. So, um... You know, and I want it to be subtle. I wanted it to be good. I didn't want it to just be like st- stunt casting. I have to like hold my own. And Quentin was great. And he really believed in me from Cabin Fever and Death Proof and the little stuff I did there. Um, and he knew that I wanted to do it. I needed someone to push me. And that's what I love Quentin. I call him the good bad influence. He's like always <laughs> pushing me to do stuff. But I sat there and we went around the table and he's like, tell me about your, like, who are you and what did you think when he joined the Bastards? And this is the it whole was, cast. The whole, it's just the Bastards. And just the Bastards. everyone's telling their backstory. What did you think when Stiglitz joined the Bastards? Well, I may have been talking out of school by giving away the secrets. We're all sitting there and everybody for like four hours is talking about their characters. And one guy was like, just hadn't thought about it. And he didn't have any lines. And he's like, why do I need to? And Quentin cut him. That was it. That guy was gone. Cut him from the movie. Gone. Right. He's like, I don't need that. So it's like, you better know your shit. Because what if there was a scene came up where you had to know it? Right. You better know it. Like, he didn't take it seriously. The other thing was no cell phones on set. No, like, no texting, no nothing. Like, when you're there, there's, there's also no monitor. He stands next to the camera. Oh. And he said that, like, directors' movies start to suck because they get lazy in the chair. I remember that. Like, I didn't have a monitor in the jungle. We were like, I was there with the camera. Like, I'm, and, I, and, and I go, well, don't you want to see the shot? And he goes, let's look at it this guy for it. And he points at Bob Richardson. He's like, he's the best in the world. Just the, I was the, like, Bob knows what DP? I want. The DP, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, Quentin will... And, and so the way Quentin works is it starts... You don't think, oh, like most directors have like a comic book frame in their head and they want to position the actors a certain way. That's their vision. But Quentin is the opposite. He has the scene and the feeling, but he wants the actors to feel comfortable in the space. So the first thing you do, like when we do figure out the bat scene where I'm going to come out in the tunnel, we go there and we rehearse it and we work on 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 it until we feel like this is where I would go. This is where I'd come out. This is where he'd position him. Aldo would sit over here. Like, we really, really, really work out where we be, where we feel, and what feels natural. This is no crew. So then the morning of, we're shooting it. We do that again. Quentin comes out with all the actors, and it's just him. And he runs the scene. And then he brings in Bob Richardson, and they get a lens. And he's like, and Quentin's like, I'm thinking maybe, like, and we just, like, we're just, we're like, we're in theater. We're just acting the scene. We're having fun, and we're doing it, and we're doing it, and we're doing it. And he's just kind of walking around with the lens, and then he kind of figures out the shot. Then once Quentin does, he's like, all right, let's bring in the chain of assholes. He calls that everybody comes in, and we do the scene. And Quentin and Bob kind of have it figured out from there. But the whole thing is it comes organically from 
the scene and who you are and where you are and what you're intent. And then he can get stylish with the lighting and the position and let Bob do the frame and all that stuff. But what I learned was like, you know, you have to know these characters the way you know your best friends. Mm -hmm. And when I'm writing the characters in Green Inferno, finally, I could make a movie from an actor's point of view. And I could mm. understand what, I, what they're going to ask because I was there going, well, where was I yesterday? How angry am I? How well do we know each other? Do I give them a look? Are we that kind of close friends? Or is it like, you know, you just have right. to understand what the relationships are. And a lo- so it's shocking how many directors don't think mm. about that. How many writers don't think about that? They're like, no, you just come in and say this and this. But Quentin's whole thing is character, character, character. What is the history between the characters? What is the backstory between the characters? What is the relationship of those characters? Because think about you hanging out with your friends. When you're watching movie night, when it was bad movie, you know, Wednesday, cheap Wednesday, ass movie, but, yeah. yeah, cheap ass movie, or whether you're watching it, you know, the BFF club, like every, you know who they are. Everyone's different. Who likes to get this seat? Who's going to go for the popcorn? Who's responsible? Like you know that stuff, and yet it's shocking how little of that thought process goes into writing characters. Amazing point. It's yeah. unbelievable. So that's where you're like, oh, that's why all these movies are bad. Is because no one's actually taking the time to think about this and do it and write it. Or they're just like, oh, what would be a cool line? Mm-hmm. I want a fun one-liner. What's a cool thing? I want to sit this way. No one is thinking this mm-hmm. is how. And that's what I wanted. I want that kind of naturalistic acting, that naturalistic style where, yeah, this is how this guy, this guy has a crush on her. This one doesn't like her. These two know each other for two. So when you give that to the actor, they understand where they are. You give them a compass. They know you, you, know, you have to give them the DNA of the character and they can construct that so that was all the kind of stuff that I learned same thing with Knock Knock when I'm writing the characters and we're positioning the camera and you know we went in the house we really 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 rehearsed it rehearsed it rehearsed it so we got all the movement right and some of the some of the stuff that I think is the best sequences in the movie all came out of that kind of rehearsal and not just like sitting and sometimes there's no room you can't like physically be there Mm -hmm. because of reflections or whatever but really being there next to the camera watching the actor really feeling like and just kind of trusting the DP and trusting the process makes you a better director makes you a better writer for your characters too what was it like uh, working with Brad Pitt Brad's the best dude he was so awesome and he had just had the twins so he loved being there Uh, that was the joke was that he was like the only place he was getting sleep was like (laughs) in his trailer on set (laughs) but he just you know the thing is and this was at the time and I've since run into him and he's always the same like he is he's as cool as you'd hope he'd be and he just wanted to like he was one of the guys one of the bastards we loved him and we were sitting there I remember sitting there with like Brad and Paul Rust is really funny and BJ Novak and get and like and Brad was cool Brad was like he watched Hostel and Hostel too like he's like oh shit like BJ's a writer and producer and actor in the office and Paul Rust was writing a movie for Judd Apatow and Eli's like you know makes his movies and Till Schweiger's a director like he loved that like everybody Everyone was an actor in it, mm-hmm. but everybody had something going mm-hmm. on that wasn't just being in this movie. Um, and he was just, you know, it was so cool. You would never know his life is that big. And probably the best moment that exemplifies Brad Pitt was when we went to Cannes and they bring up, like, they make you walk up the closet. Now, Cannes, it's like, it's almost like a military. So it's like the end of Star Wars, like that <laughs> level. Armed guards with machine guns and like ceremonial outfits <laughs> right. and the red carpet and you can't take a photo and you don't have no selfies and like this whole behavior of you're in the tuck, you are the center of the world, like the center of this earthquake, and it's Tarantino who's a rock star and Brad Pitt, and they're like this, and the guards control like you the guards say like, Okay, now you take five steps here for these photographers. And it was like <laughs> me, Brad, Christoph, Diane Kruger. Michael Fassbender. Like, they were only... Because they had, like, posters of us, and they were, like, only letting us 
and Quentin and Melanie Laurent. Like, it was just <laughs> us walking up front. And we kind of looked back, and as we're getting farther away, there were the other people that the studio wasn't playing, but they still made their way to Cannes. There were, like, other people that were in the movie that had big parts, but that weren't part of that first line. <laughs> yeah. And Brad, after, like, we all kind of walk, we sort of, like, look back like we're getting separated, and Brad just stops, parts the guard, and waves everybody over. He's like, come on, you're with me. It was such a cool Brad Pitt moment. Like He can do whatever he wants. He yeah. can do whatever he wants. And we all walked up together. <laughs> and that was Brad. Brad's like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. There's no separation here. There's no we're the stars and this is a supporting cast. Which is cool because that goes opposite of what you might expect from such a big star. Just the know? cool. And then Ange- he's there with Angelina. So you're like, oh, my God. I'm on the red carpet with Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie and Quentin Tarantino. And you can't hear anything because there's like such – it's like being at the center of what you imagine a Beatles concert. It's one of those moments like this is it. Like I'm yeah. having one of the greatest moments of my life. Yeah. And we just couldn't get the smiles off our faces. That was like one of those things where it's just all – it's all worth it. You're like all of that. I mean obviously the work is what, what makes it worth it. But, but Brad was just like – I remember him doing that. And you know that was just such a great – just such a great moment, exemplary. I've often like, said him. The, the biggest stars are always the coolest. Yeah. It's always the guys in the middle that are kind of the dicks. The middle is the worst. Yeah. Because the they top feel guys like are always The top super, guys are super, super cool. No, I've, I've found that too in all my interactions. And look, I just directed Keanu Reeves, and that guy has been famous since the 80s. Good like call. basically him Very and Tom Cruise. I mean, that guy when The Matrix was the biggest movie star in the world. Mm hmm. And the coolest guy, just so easy, so nice, so gracious, so such good ideas, such good energy, terrific actor, goes for it every take. And you're like, yeah, that's what I want. I want to work with that guy, not the person that's like had two guest spots and had one movie at Sundance that failed and <laughs> yeah. it's miserable and it's, I know this and that. No, the people that are easy and user-friendly, that have done it all, that just want to come in and do a great job – and that was Keanu. He was just the, such a good dude. Just such a great, great, well, great guy. confidence, too, and confidence in you. Yeah, and you, pushing you himself. Respect, yeah. I know. Really pushing himself. Like, really doesn't, doesn't want to just settle, isn't phoning it in, isn't like there. He's not, he, we shot in Chile. He's like, he didn't sh- fly all the way there. By the way, Russell Crowe, same thing on China, Man with the Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. He's like, I didn't fly to China to just, like, come in and do a cameo. In, like, right, let's come yeah. up with a great... Like, we sat in a hotel room for 36 hours and went through every scene with his character going, how can we milk every single moment? What's the funny? It was the best. I loved mm-hmm. it. But I couldn't have done that with Russell Crowe if I hadn't been through that with Quentin. With Quentin, right, yeah. right. So how do you feel now? It's, the, the, like you mentioned, almost 10 years, finally, the return of, of Eli Roth in the say, theater. Are you nervous? Are you scary? I'm happy? excited. I felt like I, I had a feeling of euphoria last night where I just sat in the movie theater standing kind of at the front. The- Watching people squirm, covering their mouths, gasping. People were like, one girl took her boyfriend's coat and hid under the coat the entire movie. Like, <laughs> would like find a sleeve and just like look at a little eye hole throughout the sleeve. And people just gleefully sweating. They were doing yoga. I was calling it Green Inferno Yoga. People were contorting their bodies so badly in their chairs. And I thought, this is it. Like, I, I don't know how many more of these I'm going to get to push through. Like, I think Green Inferno is my best film. I think it's like the one that, and first, for horror, I mean, it's obviously not going to be a thriller. It's a very different type of movie. But I think Green Inferno takes it's the hostile to the next level. I think it's original and fresh and fun. But it's different. Like, there's nothing, like, it's really harder now to compete right. for screen space. To get a movie released in theaters is, is like, next to impossible mm-hmm. making an independent film. Most films go VOD, theaters generally, and distributors generally want Marvel-type, comic book-type movies. And I love those movies. But it does feel like, I don't know, the world has certainly changed since Hostel and Hostel 2. But uh, I'm just happy to be there. Like, I'm just so happy to have a movie in a theater. It's the best. Because that's what you make it for. We're going to be a big release. 
And that's what it's all about, you know, is going and seeing it with a crowd and having people come out of it going, I've never seen anything like it. Last question, what, what do you want to do in the future? You want to try and do some other stuff? You want yeah, to stick for sure. I'm, no, you, I'm you doing... told me years ago you had a couple ideas. Yeah, lines, sex, relationship. And yeah, there's a couple of things. Well, it's interesting how weird how you're... You know, your basic, like, I still love Maiden and the Beatles, but there's other bands that kind of come in. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, right. your core yeah. of who you are. Like, you're going to love hockey, you're going to love horror, but, like, there's different iterations of it. So there's certain things I will always love. But um, right now I'm, you know, attached to this movie Meg, which is a, it's a Megalodon shark, like a giant prehistoric wow. shark movie. It's a bestseller written by Steve Alton. It's a movie that kind of for 20 years has been around yeah. and in development, different forms. Like, I was, and I was waiting for it. I was like, when's Meg coming out? And then the rights became available, and I actually got a hold of the script, and I was like, I think there's a movie. You can make Jurassic Park. I was like, I think there's like a James Cameron, Steven Spielberg movie in this. Like, this could be awesome and big and scary and fun. PG-13, but like, I was like, I want a line of surfers and just the shark that just <laughs> chomps them in one bite. Like you know, all like, at once. All like, at once, just chomp. Yeah, exactly. Like that, slap shot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, there's a sailboat, but then a fin goes by, which looks like a sail. But if they just, just that kind of, yeah. you know, just those epic scenes of like, you know, people call it, Jura- they call the book Jurassic Shark or Jaws on steroids. Like, just make that kind of big, fun movie. So uh, now I'm working hard. But that's, you know, that would be a big jump. But I feel ready. I feel like, yeah, I've done five movies now. Yeah. And I'm ready to do that. Like, I want to do that big studio experience. And, and I have a, a great team around it. So, but that's that's a whole other world is navigating the studio world. But I think it's time for me to step it up and learn it. Have you seen the uh, cover of Book of Souls yet, the new Iron Maiden record? No. Oh, it How good great, is it? man. It looks like Eddie's is a, Derek, a is it Derek guy. Riggs? Well, it's a Derek Riggs style. 90 minutes long. Mm. An 18-minute song written by Bruce Dickinson. No way. Yeah. That sounds like the greatest. It's an <laughs> epic battle. All right, man. Some Green G- Inferno. I'm excited, dude. dude. Thanks, dude. So good to see good you, man. Good to see you, man. Thanks Thank for having you. me back. Appreciate it. I mean, you, should be an, you should be a regular on this show. I love it. Just I'm in. Guy, cool guy nerd. Actually, the best the thing time. of all is we want to do I – mean, well, it was your idea, but still want to do the high school sex do comedy you know what kills, where, where everybody is old. Can, do you know what the problem is? What? Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, they did that? Their, their new series, first of all, the, the movie's genius. They were 30 when they played teenagers, but they have a new show on Netflix. And I thought of you because they did it. Now that they're 40s, they Bastards. did it. They did it as a prequel. It's so genious. <laughs> they all play like, See, it's called first, it 10 years ago. I know. It's, we should have done it. We should have, like, ah, <laughs> oh, shouldn't have. But those guys, are, there's no one funnier than those Screw guys. Got, screwballs to Eli Jarkovsky. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks again to my old buddy Eli Roth for coming back to talk The Green Inferno. Great history on Italian horror mo- movies as well, Giallo, how the whole cannibal genre got started. But now that you've heard what it took to get The Green Inferno made and even what it took to get released, go check it out in theaters now, okay? It's a big screen experience, people. Don't watch this one on a smartphone. It's going to scare the crap out of you. Put on the new MeUndies. You're going to thank me in the end, though, if you like horror movies. Eli Roth is the man. He's the one of the most exciting, best new directors I've ever seen in the last, I don't know, 20 years. This movie is going to scare you bad. I've seen it. I cringed, man. There hasn't been an Eli Roth movie yet where I didn't have to put my hands over my eyes and kind of squeak through. It's super, super crazy. You're going to love it. Hope you loved Eli Roth as much as I did, and I know you're going to love The Green Inferno. And I love the feedback from all you TIJ fans as well, okay? Thank you so much for sending me all of your uh, all of your loving. 
at uh, talkisjericho at gmail.com. That's talkisjericho at gmail.com. Send me all your conversations and comments like Craig Usher did. He's from Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Said he's been listening since episode one, the double episode with Steve Austin. Thank you so much. You are a true fan. Besides the wrestling guests, he also loved the Paul Stanley Show, Bruce Dickinson, Corey Taylor, Asa Akira, Jessa Hinton, and my dad, the baby-faced assassin, Ted Irvin. Which one? He's been on like three times. Thanks, Craig, for being such an avid Talk is Jericho listener. And thanks for taking the time to email me. Got another note from Chris in New Zealand. He said, awesome show with Dana Warrior. I agree. She's amazing. Her husband was great, and it was good to see him in the Hall of Fame before he passed. I'll say, listen to that whole uh, amazing story on Talk is Jericho from a couple episodes ago. Uh, Chris continues to say, I've been a big fan of yours for years with wrestling and Fozzie. Any chance of Fozzie coming down to New Zealand? I hope so. We want to go back to Australia, and hopefully this time we come through New Zealand. I've never been to New Zealand uh, with Fozzie or uh, uh, WWE, and I want to come soon. Thank you. All right, another one from John Taylor. Not John Taylor from Duran Duran, but John Taylor, uh, J-O-N Taylor. His email says, Love Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday. Thank you, Y2J, for entertaining me since way back in the days of WCW. You're welcome. I'll continue to support TIJ by clicking the Amazon UK link every time I buy something on Amazon. One more thing. Fozzie rocks with great tracks like Do You Want to Start a War? Lights Go Out, An Enemy. I would like to request one of those songs. All right, John. Well, since you took the time to email me at talkisjericho at gmail.com, we're going to give you what you want. How about an old classic from 2005 from the All That Remains album? Here's Enemy right here from Fozzie. Keep moving. Your 
cool song. Still one of our biggest hits. And that one was for John, who requested it by emailing me at talkisjericho at gmail.com. And I encourage all of you to do the same. I encourage all of you who dig Fozzie to come check us out if you live in the UK or in Europe as the Cinderblock Party Tour continues in November with Nonpoint and Sumo Psycho uh, supporting us. November 13th in Rotterdam, all the way to December 6th uh, in Wales, London, November 26th at the Islington Academy. This is going to be the, the, the show of the fall. Don't miss out. FozzyRock.com with all the cities and venues and ticket information. There's about 21 gigs, so go find one that's close to you. Come uh, buy a VIP package. Come hang out with us. Come rock with us. Come see Soundcheck. Uh, and come see me if you're a wrestling guy. As the Y2J WWE Fall Tour rolls on tonight in Toronto, September 25th. Uh, then tomorrow in Rochester, Sunday in Syracuse. Then I'm flying to L.A. to see ACDC. If you see me there, come up and say hi to me. I'm excited about that. You can see my old friend and talk as Jericho alumni, uh, Chris Slade. And then October 2nd, Trenton. October 3rd, the Y2J 25th anniversary at Madison Square Garden. Live on the WWE Network as well against Kevin Owens. That's going to be great. Look for uh, uh, the natural Don Callis a.k.a. Cyrus, a.k.a. Uh, what was he in the Truth Commission? The Jackal. Lance Storm's going to be there. Dr. Luther's going to be there. It's going to be a rock and roll party. Really, really excited and proud. The 25th anniversary of Chris Jericho. Gee, thanks to all you guys for keeping me around that long. There's a special commemorative T-shirt that's going to be sold at the Garden and online. Y2J, Y225J. Uh, I'm excited about it. I'm excited uh, for you guys to continue to listen to this show for free for twice a week. And thanks to my great sponsors, DraftKings. Use the promo code Y2J. Play for free. SeatGeek. Use the promo code Chris J. Get a $20 rebate off your first paddle juice dollarshaveclub.com slash Jericho sign up now meundies.com slash Jericho get 5, 10, 15, 20% off your first order don't forget Uber, TrueCar and of course Amazon the oldest sponsor my favorite sponsor one of my favorite sponsors if you're going to buy something on Amazon use my links whenever you do any shopping um, at Amazon and they'll kick back a couple bucks to cover the purchase uh, cover the, the show a lot of production costs won't cost any of the extra no hidden fees all charges you just help out talk as Jericho no matter what you buy I got links on Amazon Amazon USA, Amazon UK, Amazon Canada A. You can find my links by going to podcast1.com. Click on the supporter show sponsors banner at the top of the page, then hit the talk is Jericho button. My Amazon links and links to all my sponsors right there on the page. Thank you so much. You know I love you. I want you to have a great, great, uh, great evening, great few days. Go see the Green Inferno. Thanks to Eli Roth. Thanks to the Insane Clown Posse. Stay out of the ring. Remember, that's our deal. And next week, one of the uh, founders of pro wrestling journalism, one of the pioneers, Bill Apter, will be here. He's got a new book out. Uh, is wrestling fixed? They didn't know it was broken. Uh, Bill is a very funny, uh, ridiculous guy. He's got great stories about Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Dusty Rhodes, uh, Ultimate Warrior, Macho Man Randy Savage, Andy Kaufman, the greats, the greats, the greats from 70s and 80s and 90s. Bill Apter will be here. We'll see you there. See you later, boy. See you later. Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcastone.com. <laughs>